You're listening to The Bookstack with Annie, Nia, and Sydney. Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 2 and the 11th chapter of The Bookstack. I'm Sydney. And I'm Nia. And I'm Annie. As this is the beginning of Season 2, let's get a little bit reacquainted with one another. Nia, why don't you kick us off? Hello. So I'm, I'm Nia, as we just said. My home state is Maryland. That's currently where I call home. It's a great state of Crab and Old Bay, called Crab and Old Bay. <laughs> my genres of choice are true crime, sci-fi, thriller, and mystery. They kind of shift a little bit back and forth, but those seem to be the ones that hold out the most. My connection to the literary world, I am a librarian, so that's where I what I currently do. I used to write for the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom blog. So I did that for a brief little stint there, Uh, but I did start in libraries originally when I was 16, did that first and then went forth and explored other things. I was a corporate trainer for a little while and did some technical writing because you got to, you know, go out there and explore and do the things. And then I ended up back in libraries in 2014. I finished my master's in library science in 2019. And right now I'm a substitute librarian in a public system out here in Maryland. I also dabble occasionally in writing book reviews, but that's kind of a light hobby right now. I get to it as, as I can, not as much as I would like, but you know, it's one of those, I have time. I actually have one in the pipeline I'm working on. Will I get to it? We don't know. It'll be great. (laughs) my introduction to reading I've always been a reader I always have a book I'd always have a book with me as a kid that's like one of my I guess trademarks from when I was little I always have a book with me now I have a book of short stories that lives in my car and then of course you have the digital phone that goes with you everywhere so I've got ebooks there Uh, we went to the library a lot when I was a kid and my dad used to read to go to bed at night, he would read to us. And I actually have the original set of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that was what he started with. And I think they're his books because they're classic published ones. So that's that's my little bio. Um, Sydney, what about you? So I reside in Utah. That's my home state. My genres of choice are historical true crime, fantasy, history, the nonfiction kind, <laughs> not, not alternative facts, like facts, facts. And I, I do enjoy a lot of historical fantasy or or things that alternative history style fiction. Mm-hmm. My connection to the literary world, I'm an instructional coach for the school district that I work for. And I taught English language arts for 13 years, both at the junior high and the high school level, as well as teaching collegiate pedagogy courses for two different institutions. I have my bachelor's in English with a double minor in history and anthropology, hence why I like all the history stuff. I'm just a giant history nerd. And then I got a master's in secondary education and a PhD in curriculum and instruction. Reading and writing are my two favorite things to do. They're my go-tos whenever I want to be creative. That's what I want to do is fall into a different world. My introduction to reading, I was one of those stereotypical kids that had the flashlight under the covers. Like we see those in in media now and we're like, oh, that's so ridiculous. But I, I was totally one of those kids. Same. The first series I really got into was the Boxcar Children. I remember my teacher reading the first book in the series. And it took my parents so long and so much effort to find the first book because we could find a bunch of the other books in the series, but the first one was harder to find. And it still is one of those books that I covet that I have the first in the series. As a child, my mom would always be like, hey, we're going to go on this trip. Let's go to the library and get books for our trip. And so I always really, really looked forward to the library. That's still something I get excited about. I still see books as treasures. I'm basically a book dragon. Bookworm doesn't (laughs) cover it. No, I hoard books also. Yes. 
So Annie, yeah. tell us about you. So I live in Texas, just north of Dallas. Uh, we moved here about nine years ago from Utah. So I was in Utah for a little bit. Now I'm in Dallas. I read a lot of realistic fiction, nonfiction, children's books. I'm getting into domestic thrillers and cozy mysteries because we have some episodes on those coming up. And I got really, really excited about some of those. (laughs) As I'm updating my genres, I realized that I've also matured over the years. And as I was writing this list, I thought, I sound like a mom. I sound like a 40 year old soccer mom. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not 40. I'm not 40. (laughs) not (laughs) closer to 30 than I am 40 Uh, but I am a soccer mom and a volleyball mom and I do always have a project bag with me so I guess I will just accept the stereotype and move forward embrace it I'm just gonna embrace it as and come as I am so my literary background um I was a high school English teacher for a few years and I'm just slowly getting back into that with middle school this year, I still sub a lot, mostly so they don't remember what my face looks like. So that when my (laughs) two-year-old is old enough to go to preschool, they'll hire me back. I also just graduated with a master's degree in library science from the same school as Nia. Yep. I still haven't stepped foot on their campus. Oh, I haven't either. Oh man, we should go on a field trip someday. Sydney, you're welcome to come. We'll get food from the food court. Road trip. Yep. There we go. (laughs) So someday I do want to become a school librarian. That's my dream. So that all the books I hoard, I don't have to hoard them as much because they'll be in a library and not my house. They'll be in a much bigger room. They'll be in a much bigger room and it'll be an official hoard and it won't be my budget. I can ask for a budget. I love spending other people's money. Right. I'm really excited to do that someday. So my introduction to reading, I was not like you guys. I did not read as a child very much because that's something that my sister did and I didn't want to be my sister. So I didn't read very much. I tried to read the boxcar children and my mom actually ordered the monthly, you know, back when there was the scholastic book orders and you could sign up for like a club and they would send you four copies at a time. Did either of you do that? No, I I know of it, but we didn't do it. My mom got me the boxcar children. And so like every month I would get four new books. I don't think I read them. And I think she still has them. That's so sad. I know. Those poor books. They must be so lonely. But they're pretty still. They're still very pretty. Uh, So I enjoyed writing growing up and figured that English education would be an easy degree to get if I like to write. And then I started teaching and that's when I really started to read. Uh, I found that I enjoyed sharing knowledge and cool things with my students. And the easiest way to do that as an English teacher is to read the things and share that way. Uh, Now I read with my kids all the time and I try to read an hour a day for myself which means I can get through at the rate of which I read like 50 books a year, maybe a little bit more. It's a lot going from not reading to reading. Oh, it's still a lot anyway. Like 50 books a a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, okay. Some of those are graphic novels. So some of them are llama llama red pajama. So, Eh. but Hey, 50 is 50. You're reading with your kids. Like, yeah, I I do. I do. It's important. We're working on the thousand books before kindergarten right now. Um, I gave up on that. Good luck. Thank you. We'll see how we do. We go through spurts. <laughs> you have to read a thousand different books for people who yeah. don't know what that is. And yeah. when your toddler is completely attached to the same book that you read over and over and over again, it's kind of hard to branch out. But as long as she's reading, right? You know? Yep. Yeah. You You'll get there. You still have a couple years. We do. Yeah. You have minutes. You have minutes you haven't even used yet. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> so friends, in our season one finale, we interviewed the incomparable J. Scott Savage. 
during the interview, he talked about three books that were highly influential in his life. We assigned one of those books to each other to read. And today we're going to talk about them. We've also chosen a book published in 1963, the year he was born, to read and talk about with you today. Mia, go ahead and kick us off again. So the book that I was assigned was Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Uh, It was originally published in 1865. It has had so many republications since then. There are versions with the illustrations and without the illustrations and the classics. Like you you can, if you, if you threw a rock, you could find all the different, it's, you'd hit different versions. It's it's amazing how many are out there. Do you There's, happen to know how long it's been in the public domain or if it even is? I mean, it's got to be, right? I think it's in the public. So I, I am positive it's in the public domain because you can get ebooks for free. And I don't mean the pirated okay. sites. Okay. No, it's on um, Project Gutenberg. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. So, I didn't yeah. realize it was on Project yeah. Gutenberg. Yeah. Friends, for, so. for those of you that don't know, Project Gutenberg is a website that you can go and anything that is in the free domain or public domain, you can download eBooks for free. And they end up in the public domain after, what is it? A hundred years after the copyright, I think. Something is it like hundred? I, I think it's 50. Is it 50? Uh, I, I thought, no, I think it's a hundred because Peter Pan just went into public domain. Oh. Which yeah, is why I, there are so many books coming out about Peter Pan right now. Winnie the Pooh, I think is now in public domain. And that's recent. That's a whole issue. Yeah. That's a whole issue. Yeah. yeah. That one's a really complex. That's why I think it's hundred. Yeah. That one's super complicated. So belmont.edu says if something was published before 1923, it's in the public domain. If it was an unpublished work and the author died over 70 years ago, it's public domain. If it was written by an anonymous author over 120 years ago, it's in the public domain. That doesn't give me an answer. Hang on. A hundred years. Yeah. It's you. It's a hundred ish years with some variations then. But that explains um, it why there's expires are so- 95 years after the publication date, the copyright does. So it's 95 oh, okay. years after copyright expires. Okay. There we go. But that Ta-da. explains why there are so many Alice in Wonderlands is because uh-huh. it's free so to old. adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So there are several audiobook versions too. So if you find one mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, I don't like this one, uh, try a different one. <laughs> it took me it took me three tries to find one that I was like, I can listen to this. Oh wow. <laughs> because I'm very picky about my audiobooks because that's how I get a lot of my reading done. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a little background there. Base, I mean, it, it's a pretty standard plot. I think a lot of people know because it's been out so long and it's very much into like it's a pop culture thing, I think, at this point. It's very, yeah, it's very prevalent. But it, it follows, you know, young Alice as she's sitting there bored. Her sister's reading a book that doesn't have pictures or dialogue and that's boring what good is a book without those right (laughs) (laughs) i'm listening to this according to bj novak it's okay right well you know when you're a book with no pictures yeah that is a real fun book for little kids let's be honest that's an amazing book (laughs) uh yeah so that's she ends up following a white rabbit down a rabbit hole and that's where it starts. I don't want to get too into it again for anyone who hasn't read it. I'm not going to do a spoiler on it. It was really, I don't remember if I read it as a kid. I know I read it for my youth literary class that I took for my undergrad and that was were kind we in of that fun. class together. We were, that's I'm right. pretty sure we were. Yeah. I, I, I think so. That was a good class. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, just read it then when you're a student analyzing it and hyperanalyzing it. It's a very different experience than enjoying it as an adult. 100%. To be like, I'm listening to it. So it was kind of fun to listen to it, especially with my daughter in my back of my head going, I could see her having some of these thoughts. I mean, not 
necessarily yeah. now because she's so young, but to be, oh yes, I'm I'm big, therefore I'm a grown-up. Yeah, yeah. That's something that happens. And I, I quite enjoyed re-listening to it as an adult, listening to it, going, okay, this is a kid's book. And you could see it. You could see it as almost like, okay, he was telling it as he wrote it to entertain a small kid, which I think right. is the mythos behind it. And there's a the quote that really popped out at me that just I laughed when I was listening to it is fairly early in the book. And she's you know, you have the classic, she drank the potion and got small and drank the potion and got big. And that's kind of what's going on here. And she said, you know, I do wonder what can have happened to me when I used to read fairy tales. I fancied that kind of thing never happened. And now here I am in the middle of one. There ought to be a book written about me. There ought. (laughs) Oh, we're going to break that. We're going to push that fourth wall just a little bit. So that yeah, no, I love that. I love that. So that I enjoy. I so really meta. enjoyed it. I love yeah. that. Anytime I hear something about Alice in Wonderland, I think of two things. Because I did read the book as a kid. I actually have a, a lovely hardbound gold-edged copy Ooh, nice. that I got as a child. I think of the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Oh, yeah. And I think of sci-fi's retelling that was called Alice mm-hmm. that came out, I don't know, 15 years ago something like that, Mm -hmm. that I just thought was such a fun and clever retelling of something that had been done so many times. And the, the different you know, changing of potions and things like that and who the Hatter was. And I just, I thought that was a really fun retelling, but I think that you can only really appreciate the reimaginings if you have you know, the read or, or watched or, or understood the original. When you got there too, um, I don't know how many of our, our listeners are Resident Evil fans with the movies, mm-hmm. but you have the main characters named Alice who has to mm. talk with the Red Queen, who is over the first lab in Raccoon City. And like, oh, okay. Like, there's some nice little underlays here. You don't know what's going on. You've gone down the rabbit hole underground into this facility. You don't know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Obviously, it's much darker than this children's book. But um, right, 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 right. You know, it does surprise me how much of Alice in Wonderland really has permeated everything. Yeah. Everything. You say even Resident Evil, right? Yeah. Yep, Resident Evil. And that's so far. That's so far from a children's book. Oh, yeah. But you follow it. You're very vested in what's going on with poor Alice. Right. Right, right. So, yep. And it it just takes us back to the reimagining that J. Scott Savage did Mm -hmm. with his Lost Diaries of Wonderland. So I read the I read the second book that's coming out in September. It's coming out now. And it is even more fun than the first. Oh, right on. It is so clever and so fun. I devoured it in a couple of days. Like it was just such a fun reimagining where you still have characters that are very much their own creations, but the, the visiting of the world and having it in a new fun way is so much fun. When it's such a rich world. I mean, there's, there's so much to pull from there. Yeah. So, but yeah, that, that was the the one I was assigned. And then I did a complete 180 <laughs> and went from this, you know, sweet, endearing, classic children's book to horror, because that's what I do. <laughs> um, that is a 180, right? Woo! Here so, we go. And this one's kind of complicated because the book, so the the, the book I, I read, I'm going to put that in air quotes and I will get to why, is The Horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap Long. The book was published in 1963. It was one of the top selling books in 1963 for horror. He actually had multiple books on 
the top bestseller list, he was a pretty prolific author. He the the book is in the Lovecraftian Cthulhuian mythos. He was friends with H.P. Lovecraft, which is why you picked it. Yes, okay. it is because okay. I'm a Lovecraft fan. And they were, you know, basically he, you know, Lovecraft created this world and long helped contribute to build up that mythos so i think that's they were part of the same club together and did all of this stuff but they were originally published in weird tales magazine in a series in 1931 oh yeah so the book came out 32 years after they were originally published which i didn't know that till i started reading it going okay there's some interesting terminology in here that is really outdated and <laughs> oh okay we're we're heading into the this was definitely written by a white dude who didn't understand anything but white culture okay so which you get a lot of that that's a big complaint of lovecraft is there's a lot of underlying racism in there too oh, i gosh. look at the monsters they're less offensive than the <laughs> the people that Ooh. are yeah <laughs> so i I preface this by putting it, I read it in air quotes. I actually, it had to be printed on demand. It is not just available out there. So reading print books is a little rough for me just because of timing and juggling a toddler. But right. I, I did struggle reading it because I am, a, I'm a, I read Lovecraft. I read Agatha Christie and Agatha Christie books came out in the same time period. So you have, you know, you've murder on the Orient or Oriental Express. Right. Um, Death on the Nile. Yeah. But again, the, you've got some very problematic terms and some very racist terminology that was fine at the time. It's not fine now. I can work with a lot of it. You have to put that, okay, this is the hat I'm listening or reading it in. It's fine. But it hit the point where it was so reliant on those heavy racist, like Far East and air quotes undertones. It was too much. I'm like I, we've, you've lost me with the monster because you've layered it so far into the, the racist stuff. I couldn't do it. I tried. I got about halfway through it and was like, I, I you know what? Even keeping in mind when it was written, it was, it was a push. You know, I, no, you say I that you had you. a hard time finding a copy of it because it needs to be printed on demand. When uh-huh. I was going through the list of popular books from 1963, I thought there are so many of these I haven't even heard of and I don't uh-huh. know how to get copies of. And it made me think, okay, in 40 years, when someone is looking at books that were printed in, you know, 2022, are they all like, what's going to stick around? Yeah. And then yeah, you talk yeah. about how this one, you know, maybe fell from favor because of the terminology and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me wonder what terms we use now, what cultural references we use that are going to be completely outdated yeah. in 40 years. And it doesn't matter how enthralling the monster is, how enticing the story is. If there's too much of that, that's just inappropriate now, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. It'll pop you right out. And then with the the factor with that too is how much of it is e-published only. Mm-hmm. How is that going to last? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know? That's true. So, but yeah, it's, I, I I hate to be like, this was really hard to read. You know, he does have a very long accomplished list and he was a very popular author. And there are parts that are very well done and they're witty. And what did I do with my book? Like I marked... I had a quote that I was looking at and was like, that's pretty entertaining. You know, I don't know if I'm going to read it out loud. I, it made, it was entertaining at the time and I flagged it, but it basically was like, okay, so you have the West. It was very poignant about colonialism, which was very funny for how offensive it was. 
then you have, <laughs> oh my gosh, you have this character who's from the far east who, you know, is a savage in primitive, all in these air quotes. And oh, he's yeah. like, you guys in the west have this approach to ethics and all of this, but what makes you think that your God isn't? So it was a very like poignant quote and I'm not going to read it because it doesn't quite translate very well without the rest of the layout, but it was very like, oh, this is ironic. This is so ironic reading it right now. (laughs) So he's very good. He's very good at, at telling a story. It's definitely in that, you know, 1920s, 30s way they wrote that's because just wild to me that it, that it came out in the 60s, but it's written in the 20s and the 30s. So, which, you know, there was a lot going on then. I, you know, I get that. So I, he, he's very good. You can tell he's very good. I think if it was a little more, if we were able to lift that stuff out and still keep the content, it'd be very good. But it was, it was a nice stretch read because I, I don't think I would have pulled that on my own. But yeah, it was centered in a museum with this horrible artifact that came in and the horror that has happened to it and the, the monsters and the mysteries that are happening that and the magic behind it. Like it, it's the content. It's a cool is, premise. It's a very cool premise. I wish I could have finished it, but I, I couldn't do it. So did you have any night at the museum flashbacks and like Ben Stiller showing up and dinosaurs? <laughs> I've never seen that movie, so no. You've never seen that movie? No. I know of it. I know some of the references from it, but I have never what? seen the movie. Okay, when you come out here so we can go tour UNT, we'll also watch <laughs> Night at the Museum. Okay. I like this plan. Uh-huh. We'll do we'll do a a, a double feature though, because there's two. Yes. We will also live stream this for everyone. So we're not doing that. (laughs) We're not doing that. Not live streaming. Nope. Nope. (laughs) No, but I'm all for double features. If we're going to do a movie night, I'm all for double feature (laughs) movie nights. That's how I roll with B movies actually. So that's, that would work. I don't know if that one's a, that wouldn't qualify. Two B movies equals an A movie. I think the second one might be a B movie. Yeah. Two B movies equals a, a, you know, mystery theater 3000. I know. I was thinking I'll get the servo. (laughs) Someone bring their gypsy. That'd be great. I do. Did I go too far? Yeah. I get the references. I used to watch that too. So, okay. Yep. Homework for all of our listeners. Yep. So <laughs> the, those were my two, my two books inspired from our, our J Scott Savage episode. Sydney, what were yours? So I was assigned a wrinkle in time by Madeline LaAngle. It was published in 1962. It won a bunch of awards, including the Newbery award. If it had been published a year later, I would have been able to double dip this book for both categories. I thought that. I'm sorry. It's okay. Oh. It's all right. I can I can do two you books. Can... More reading. More reading. I both love and I'm somewhat critical of this book. Fair. I'm not going to give a lot of spoilers about what the plot yeah. is because it's a really cute book and you should definitely, if you have kids, read it with your kids. If you don't have kids and you still want to read it, do that too. But I'm just going to kind of go into some of the things that I was critical about because I read this as a child. And so I was going back and rereading it as an adult with the nostalgia of having loved it as a child. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I can so see that it kind of put the bar high. It, yeah. Yeah. It made it a little bit harder because I loved, I loved the book as a kid. I actually have a book that's all four books in the one little stack. Like it's just a, a compilation oh, wow. of all four books in the series. I ended up needing to listen to this as an audiobook because I, I was having a bit of a hard time with it because oh, of some of the language. It's okay. It's okay. That's what happens when you kind of break through the, the veil of nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. Right. It can be uncomfortable sometimes. So I read this as a child and I remember thinking even as a kid that the character of Charles Wallace 
was a bit unbelievable. And they always refer to him as Charles Wallace. They never refer to him as Charles. They never refer to him as anything else except Charles Wallace. But the kid is four. And yet he has the vocabulary of a highly educated adult, not just an adult, but a highly educated adult. And he is supposed to be this complete genius savant, which is unbelievable now. And that's coming from someone who's taught for over a decade and has done all of these courses on childhood development, even kids that are advanced. Like, I'm not going to allow a four-year-old to warm milk on the stove, which is one of the actions he did. Oh, he's not Matilda, which no. again is a fictional character. I remember right. I remember reading it thinking the same thing, thinking, okay, savant, whatever. Some of these things just are not safe. No, there's not- just certain things that, and it just makes it more unrealistic. Yeah, I felt the same way. I just, his actions throughout the book versus his language that he used made it just feel very scripted instead of having the characters come alive on the page. It would have been more believable if it had been Meg's twin. Meg is the main Mm. character and of an age where some of his actions would have been more developmentally aligned. At four, it doesn't matter if your parent trusts you to warm milk on a stove, like putting milk in a pot and carrying it to the stove. It's too heavy for a Mm four-year-old. Like there are certain things that even if you're smart enough to do it, you physically can't, can't, or you're physically not mature enough. You're emotionally not mature enough. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you find this emotional maturity levels are a bit deficient later on in the book, which I'm not going to explain because it's part of the climax, but Charles Wallace is very much a plot point and he's mm-hmm. used to further the plot and it makes him very static rather than dynamic. But then again, mm-hmm. all of the characters are a bit static rather than dynamic. Even Meg, who's the main character, doesn't have a big character arc. Mm-mm. Okay. So do you I mean, see she, that? She as... tries to have a character arc. She just doesn't. <laughs> do you see that as a fault of the time period in which this was written? Or do you see that as a fault of the author of the writing? I think and I, was... I'm not trying to bring anyone down. I'm not. Oh, no, no, no. I completely understand. I think that it was mostly the writing of the time. Okay. There's some stuff that I'm going to get into about that that has to do with when the author was born and when this book was written Mm, okay but it's I think it's very largely just the way books were written Mm -hmm. back in this time period because the whole book is just plot based it's not a character based story it's a plot based story okay and every character is just there to serve a plot point Hmm. so I mean nostalgically I love the ideas found in this book it has some really great values and morals of finding out who you were supposed to be and and being true to yourself, recognizing that your flaws are actually what makes you special and important rather than like everybody else. Which is and, a great, you know. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's a great value. And if I had kids, this is totally a book I would read with them mm-hmm. because it has such a great value. But the one thing that I don't ever remember when I read this as a kid, but that stuck out very blatantly to me now is there were three or four times in the book where she made very, very poignantly specific references to Christianity. Mm, yeah. And it just stuck out to me as completely out of place because everything is science-based and going off yeah. into these different worlds. And then you have a reference to Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything against Jesus. I'm just saying it felt it, out of place in this book. It's really yeah. jarring. It didn't 
add to the plot. It didn't further anything. It didn't do anything except remind people that they're only good people if they're Christians. Oh, see that that's uncomfortable for me. Yeah. See, and that to me brings it back to that's right. This was written in the sixties for children. When you had the, you know, that it's very sixties. It's very, Mm -hmm. you got leave it to beaver on the one end Mm -hmm. and then you've got free love in the seventies coming up on the other end. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I could see why that would be something. Look, we want to throw this in here. It's a kid's book with kids values and, and we need to make sure that they're following this very righteous path. Yeah. That's pretty poignant for right now too, isn't it? (laughs) I just, so I did some digging into her life because it just felt so out of place that I was like, why did she add these? Sure. So I started digging into her life. The end of the audiobook actually has an afterword by her daughter. Oh, okay. And her daughter gives like a, an overview about her mom's life and all of this stuff. Or maybe it was her granddaughter. I don't remember. It was a family Descend- member. A descendant of. Some, I could some see granddaughter. Name. But she was very, very involved in her local church. And all of her books promote Christian values. But this one is so scientific. All of them are. All of them are? All of them are. Interesting. But I think that that was the way that she justified all of these scientific premises is that she could still bring it back to the faith that she believed in so that it was acceptable. I think, I think she was making it palatable for her and people of her generation because she was born in 1918. Whoa. Got it. Got it. Okay. So she is very much a product of her generation. Right. So as I read this book, I just had to remind myself that while looking at this, with today's lens and going, Mm -hmm. this book is great, but it's starting to limit those kids that can identify themselves as a Meg or a Calvin because they don't have the same faith as Meg or Calvin. They're Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or any of these other cultures. Like the book doesn't ever talk about a time period. It's made to feel like it be it could be happening anytime. Right. But the 1950s values of women in the, the house dress and everything is very prevalent, even in other worlds. Mm-hmm. You still have the women taking care of the home. Like there is still very much the product of her generation coming out into her books as to what she believes in. Mm-hmm. But I just looked at that going, I can't judge this based on today's lens. No. Because right. that's not the lens she wrote it in. Well, I think it's and unfair to, just... to judge any book by today's lens. Unless it was written today. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the lens we should be using is the lens of the time. And thank you, know, you. thank you so, for you know. fixing my words, Nia. Yes. So I just, as it, as they arose, I just went, yep, that was something the author focused on and pushed it aside and kept going. Yeah. So interesting. My, my level of critical issues with the book have nothing to do with those things that, that did stick out to me. Cause I just focused on the characterizations and the plot points because I was just looking at it from the lens of this was published in 1962. What did they value in 1962? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is that is that book so I still love the book because of the values that it promotes and the idea well the value of being true to yourself that it promotes and and fighting for what you believe in and and fighting for your family Mm -hmm. but it's also hard when you go back and reread a book as an adult that you read as a kid because it breaks that veil and and it de-romanticizes that memory it's like going back and rereading Ender's Game as an adult and going, they swore oh. over, they swore almost 200 times in this book. I yeah. don't remember reading that as an eighth grader. Also, they were like seven. Yeah, there was a lot of murder in that book for being seven. There was seven. a lot of murder in the book for being seven. Yeah, but I digress. 
The book that I chose <laughs> is Happiness is a Warm Puppy by Charles oh, Schultz. That it's just makes comic. me so happy. It, it's a comic book. And I did it entirely indulgently because in looking through the books published in 1963, this is the only one I had a really strong connection to. And the only one I really recognized besides Jekyll and Hyde, which I only connected to because I had to teach it. And I do say had to teach it. I didn't choose to teach it. You didn't get to. You had to. I didn't get to. I had to. (laughs) So I chose to read Happiness as a Warm Puppy because it threw me back to Sundays as a child where I would take the funnies section out of the newspaper and read the comic strips while my parents read the news. I think that dates myself in and of itself because I am talking about physical newspapers. It wasn't that I mean, they, long ago. They it still really have wasn't. physical newspapers with the comics and they give I me know. warm fuzzies when I see them. They're hard I know. to find, I just, but they still exist. I just, we haven't gotten the Sunday paper mm-hmm. in so long. Like, it's just not, like, I've we read had... our news on our phones now, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, I, it just, reading Happiness as a Warm Puppy just kind of made that nostalgia where I'm reading the funnies while my parents read the real news. And I remember my dad teaching me how to take Silly Putty and put it on yes. a frame yes. that I really liked so that you could make a copy of the frame. Yes. And I remember doing that. My dad would show me how to do it. And my mom would be like, you're going to make it all dirty and it's going to ruin yep. the color and it's going to get all over your hands. And so my dad and I did it anyway. <laughs> Cause like you do. Yeah. I think um, you should probably explain who Charles Schultz is at some point with why, oh. because I know who he is, and I bet a yeah. lot of people who listen to us do, but... But not everybody. That's not a very everybody. valid point. He's one of Charles, my favorites. Charles Schultz is the creator of Peanuts. So all of the characters of Charlie Brown and Snoopy and Woodstock and Linus and Lucy and Sally, those are all Charles Schultz creations. And so his cute. the cartoons based on his characters are still on streaming services and YouTube today. And every year I watch it's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. <laughs> and there are two Christmas specials that I watch and there's Thanksgiving one that makes me so happy because peppermint Patty invites herself over for Thanksgiving dinner, but he's not going to be there. Cause he's supposed to go to his grandma's. The whole class invites themselves over. And so Pepper and Patty then invites like all of these other people (laughs) to come have Thanksgiving dinner at Charlie Brown's. And so Snoopy being Snoopy is like, all right. So he makes a bunch of toast and he makes popcorn and he pulls out jelly beans and they have like this child Thanksgiving dinner and everyone's upset that there's no turkey. And he's like, I'm a kid. I can't make a turkey. (laughs) And the whole time he's stressed about how he's not at his grandma's house. Yeah, like everyone's just cute. Anyway, the whole series of comic strips in Happiness is a Warm Puppy just is like bottled nostalgia for me. And I loved every second of it. And Snoopy is still my very favorite character. But sometimes I think we all feel a bit like Charlie Brown because we're unsure of ourselves and we need support from our friends. And so it was just a good reminder to embrace the day and and embrace those around you as supports. Jenny, what about you? Lovely. I'm so glad you chose that one. I saw it on the list and thought, oh, I also love that book. And I'm pretty sure I own it. But then I thought, it's okay. I can read something else. And I'm glad I chose something else. Sorry, not sorry. Overlap. (laughs) Because we don't talk about what we're going to read beforehand. I don't think we we don't. Yeah. I don't think we did for this either. It's always a surprise. Well, I think it's more fun when we surprise each other too. I think so too. Agreed. I agree. Mm -hmm. So I was given... Aesop's Fables, and I had to look it up again and again how to pronounce that, but please tell me if I am pronouncing it right. 
Is it? I always Aesop? pronounced it Aesop. Me too. Okay, but then I looked on the internet things, and it was it was written out phonetically Aesop. I don't know. I don't know. So I stick with what you got. I'm sure it's one of those potato potato things or GIF and GIF. Yes. And we just are gonna roll with it. Except that there's also questions about whether or not he was even a real person. So. Oh. I know because I did a little bit of deep diving, not a lot, but a little bit. So, so I like was a medium dive. Yeah. Not quite, you know, into the 12 foot like in the middle of the pool. I went to like the seven foot deep where maybe if I jump, I can reach the top. Just a little bit of a dive. <laughs> I know nothing about swimming, uh, <laughs> nothing at all. So I was assigned this one because both J Scott Savage and I remember seeing this book, I think at our grandparents' house. And saying, well, that looks like fun. Let's read that giant treasury of short stories. So I was assigned to read, well, now I'm going to say Aesop's fables and just go with it. So Aesop was supposedly around 620 to 564 BCE, which means that he was an oral storyteller and nothing was written down. None of his stories were written down until hundreds of years after his death. So that's where the question of whether or not he was a real person comes into play. Nothing was written down. Nothing really survives. I mean, there are busts, you know, the metal not metal, sorry, the marble uh, forms of someone's head and shoulders. Those exist, but I mean, you can make that out of anyone. It doesn't have to be a real person. So by the time his stories were collected and compiled, it's hard to know what was actually his work and what is just credited to him. Yeah. After a certain amount of time goes by things, especially with oral storytelling, things have been added, things have been taken out. And so it's hard to know where things actually originated it's one of those things like it's telephone where Mm -hmm. like i tell you a story and then you tell me a story and then by the time nia tells me the story again it's like a completely different story it is and that's one of the cool things about storytelling is that they aren't really pinned down to a person it's more pinned down to a culture to a time period to a collective group Mm -hmm. which is very different i think than how writing is now And with copyright, where a certain person owns it, and that is their legacy. Like Charles Schultz, his legacy is Charlie Brown. It's not that Charlie Brown came from the 60s, it's he came from Charles Schultz. Whereas oral storytelling is, well, it came from this time period, it came from this group of people. So yeah, it's very different than writing today. And I think that's a cool thing. I like the idea of oral storytelling. I I wish it's something that we were able to retain today and still continue, but with the legal world in the way that it is and how everyone wants to be paid for everything, we don't live that way anymore. So the stories that I chose, and I got them from the Library of Congress. So many people have rewritten Aesop's fable so many times that it It's really hard to pin down the original if there is any work. So I just went to the Library of Congress and looked there. The first one that I looked at was The Town Mouse and The Country Mouse. And I chose that one because I remember watching the Disney movie and it stuck out to me. Oh, yeah. It's it's Two Little Mice. Mm -hmm. Does it have the same title? 10 minutes. Yep. Interesting. Like I know the story, but I don't. Disney did a thing. Yep. Disney does all the things. Isn't that how things usually happen? Uh, Disney Mm -hmm. did a thing. Yep. Disney. Alice in Wonderland, Wrinkle in Time. Disney did a thing. Disney did it. I did not realize that this was Aesop's fable. I just assumed that because these stories were so old that there wouldn't be a town mouse and a country mouse. I don't know. I just didn't, that verbiage just didn't work for me for the time period. 
So I was surprised that it was one of his. So if you don't know the story, a mouse from the city goes to eat with a mouse that lives in the country. He hangs out at his house for a little bit. The country mouse makes a simple meal that the city mouse does not want to eat. And then the city, or in this case, the town mouse, enchants the country mouse with his stories of the town, of living in the city. And so the country mouse decides that he wants to go eat lunch at the town mouse's house. So they go to the town mouse's house and the country mouse is enchanted by all the food, all the small bites and all the fancy cheeses and all the fancy cakes. But then he doesn't eat the fancy food because a cat scratches at the door and he gets freaked out. And then the house dog walks in. And so this country mouse didn't eat anything because he was so scared, even though the food was fancy. And there is a little sentence moral at the end of every fable. And the one that goes with this one is poverty with security is better than plenty in the midst of fear and uncertainty. Damn, that's pretty poignant for right now, too. Yeah, it kind of fits. And the stories were a page long. I thought they were longer than that. I remember reading these growing up thinking they were four or five pages long. Nope, they're just a short little one page. Very simple. Let's eat a meal. Tell some stories. Go eat another meal. Yeah. You got the font size. You got to have illustrations. You have. Yeah. Yeah. Even with the illustrations and everything, it was just the short little seven paragraph, if that. Straight like my point. synopsis is almost half the length of the actual story. It was, it was very interesting to me. Uh, the other one that I chose was the tortoise and the hare, mostly because Just, this one, I mean, we all know this story. We do. That's we it's very know. prevalent in our culture. So I read it thinking there's got to be something deeper. There has to be something more that I'm missing. There is not. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> exactly what you think it is. And in case you don't know what a hare is, it's a type of rabbit. So the hare challenges the tortoise that looks like a turtle, but is not a turtle. Because he's a land animal. Yep. Instead of a water swimming one. There you go. See, I knew there was a reason I looked at this one. So the hare challenges the tortoise to a race, thinking that it will be easy to win because hares are faster than tortoises. And they ask a fox to judge the race. The hare takes off quickly while the tortoise begins his slow, steady pace. And then the hare gets tired and takes a nap. The tortoise continues his slow, steady pace and passes by the hare. And then by the time the hare wakes up, the tortoise is too far to overcome and the tortoise wins the race. That's it. The moral at the end is that the race is not always to the swift, word for word. The race is not always to the swift. Yeah, I mean... There it is. That's it. I really thought that there was going to be something deeper. And then when the fox was introduced, I thought, oh, maybe the fox actually eats the tortoise. <laughs> and maybe I'm like, I don't know, something weird goes on there. Nope. Crunchy the fox taco. is introduced as the judge and that's it. Okay, cool. So these would be really good for your thousand books before kindergarten. <laughs> you can count each one as a book and get there through like 500 in two days. That is true. So, so yeah, I like it. When I taught, one of the things that I did in junior high to teach argumentative writing, and then in high school when I did debate, I have a series of fairy tales that are mock trials. Ooh, that's fun. And one of the mock trials has to do with tortoise and the hare. It's a good one. This is a good uh, story to expand on. It's it's the state versus hare and fox as committing. They were doing sports bets and Mm. they were... They were gambling. Rigging, they were rigging the race. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love that. 
That would be a good one. What I liked about the tortoise and the hare again is that it's an easy one to understand, to add on to, to put in a courtroom, to take outside of just the simple fable. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it referenced. I've seen it referenced in one of the kids' shows that my daughter watches. Oh yeah. So I bet. Yep. And it wasn't I, even the main plot. It was like a little side plot reference. So, and you know, they run all over with the hair and they run all over with the hair. And then the tortoise gets to where they were going and finds what they were looking for without all of the drama. So. Ah, now we know yeah. tortoises are also not dramatic, but hairs are. They're not drama queens. Nope, nope. They are not. They're slow and steady. I like it. So then the book that I chose from 1963, I don't know. I was, I was on a little bit of a children's kick, I guess. I read Encyclopedia Brown. (laughs) Did you read it with a kid or without a kid? I did not read it with my children. I should have though. Uh, By Donald J. Sobel. Again, it was published in 1963. And this is actually a series of books. Like the Boxcar Children. The first one came out in 1963. Which is all that matters. Yep. Doesn't matter when the other ones came out first one came out in 1963. I chose this book because I didn't have a lot of time to read. I was kind of on a children's kick and I think, I don't know, it was summertime and I was trying to finish up some stuff, but I remember people using the name encyclopedia as a pop culture reference, but I never really got it. So I thought I should learn a little bit about the book. Have you guys ever heard people use encyclopedia Brown as a culture reference, as a culture reference, like your yeah. parents or your grandparents? Yeah. Not my parents no. or grandparents, but I've had, no? um, I've had coworkers or okay. or friends in the in cl- in school settings that yeah. have referenced Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, I've heard it referenced. I don't remember by who or where. I vaguely remember Arthur at one point referencing Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, like I know of it, but yeah, I don't think I've had any active references. I think that a lot of the references to Encyclopedia Brown became replaced with uh, referring to people as Poindexter. Yeah, see that. same idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, Encyclopedia Brown is a lot like the Cam Chan- Jansen books that are coming out now. If you have young children who are in elementary school, um, Cam Jansen is a detective who starts a little detective agency. Encyclopedia Brown does the same thing. He's a smart boy who runs around the town solving mysteries. His real name is Leroy. But the town has renamed him Encyclopedia because... Because no one wants to be called Leroy? (laughs) Well, yeah. Because no one wants to be called Leroy. (laughs) I wouldn't either. No, it's true. When I read that, I thought that was... It's a big jump from Leroy to Encyclopedia. I could see like Earl becoming Encyclopedia. But Leroy, that is a long way from your actual name. It's better Uh, though. It's an improvement. It is better. It is much better. And remember, this is the 1960s. People owned Encyclopedias. Hey, I own a set of encyclopedias from the 1960s. But do you use it? No, I used to be used. I used it as a child. Okay. Even though they were kind of out of date, I actually, I actually wrote papers referencing the page numbers of these encyclopedias. And I still have these encyclopedias and they are white and green. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know exactly Mm -hmm. which ones those are. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when my parents decided that the internet was taking over the world and the encyclopedias weren't as important anymore. They got us, what was it called? Britannica something. Encyclopedia Britannica. Computer program. Yeah, yeah. I think it was still called the Encyclopedia Britannica. Was it it Encyclopedia Britannica? So they got us that and said, we don't need to use these paper encyclopedias anymore. And so they used to let us cut them up for projects. So we actually like would cut maps out of the encyclopedia and then paste it on to like collages and things (laughs) so having having done 
collection maintenance and whether or not you should be keeping that kind of stuff. Yes. Like I'm sure a lot of people, a few people listening are probably really horrified about that. Oh, but, um, I, my, mom information might, I'm that my mom knows she let us cut them up. <laughs> She'll let me know. If we're at a date, if the information is wrong, it, it's okay. Oh yeah. The okay. information was way wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah. Think of it this way. If you're playing Trivial Pursuit and the answer is the Soviet Union, it's probably out of date. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert, I've done that. So if your encyclopedias are as off as your Trivial Pursuit game using the Soviet Union as an answer, it's okay to cut them up. It's yeah, we cut them okay. up. We cut them out. No. But in the 1960s, encyclopedias were a big deal. That's where you got all your information. Very true. So that's why he's called Encyclopedia Brown, because he knows all the information. He's a smart kid. Gotcha. Uh, like the mysteries it. in this book are really not very mysterious. They're just like run-of-the-mill <laughs> problems. You know, what happened to Joe's lunch? Where did Sally's keys go? There are things like that. Yeah, but when you're a kid, those are big mysteries. Right, which I liked. I liked that they weren't these giant heists that were so unrealistic. They were kid-relatable problems. They were so kid-relatable. And he started a business to, out of his garage, to solve the town's mysteries. And they were things that I could totally imagine asking my 11-year-old to go do. If we didn't live in a world where I was afraid of my neighbors. Legit. Sorry, that's not funny. No, it's not, but it's true. I'm not actually afraid of my I, neighbors. I'm not. They're very nice people. It's the thing you laugh at because you either laugh or cry. It's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those so, like you laugh because it's true, not right. because it's funny. Right. Yes. And it made me nostalgic for a time when I wish I could have done this. Yeah. But they're just run-of-the-mill problems that he talks out with his dad over the dinner table. Like his dad asks, so what is your job today? What case are you on? And they kind of work through it together. And each chapter is a new mystery, but then the solution is given in a new chapter at the end of the book. So each chapter ends with, oh my gosh, I know who stole Joe's lunch. But then you don't figure it out. Then the next chapter is a new mystery. So you can either go ahead to the back of the book and read the solution. So it's kind of like a choose your own adventure-ish style, sort of. Sort of. I saw it more as- a puzzle book with answers at the back of the book. Yes. It's a puzzle book with the answers at the end of the book. So as a reader, like if I were reading this with my son, I would read him or have him read to me because he's 11, the mystery. And then we would talk about it. I love that. And then maybe the next night talk, read what the solution was and see if we got the same answer. Because you're making the kids think it through. Because you're making them think it through. I love that. It was really cool. It took me a few chapters to understand the format. Because I thought, wait, what? I know what happened because I'm an adult. Right. (laughs) But now we're going on to where the $10 went. What happened to the lunchbox? And then I got to the back and realized, oh, that's why. Okay, I get it now. It kind of also reminded me of like a magician wanting to Mm -hmm. keep their secrets. And then you finally get them to spill it all. And that's what the end of the book is. So that was cool. That's delightful. Yeah, it was a very simple book with very simple stories. The reader is able to work out the answer on their own and then read the explanation. It was just a really sweet book. That's awesome. I feel like you guys both picked really nice books for your 1963s and I'm sitting here going, I could have done so much better. <laughs> well, the list was <laughs> now everybody hard. realizes why they like now everyone is looking at going the horror on the hill, you know, oh, should I read this or not? And then they go, oh, Nia had a hard time getting through because of this. 
knowing mm-hmm. that, do I still want to read it? Like knowing which books we didn't like sometimes is just as valuable as knowing which books we did. Agreed. And I was totally willing to give it a go. And I was also willing because it wasn't a technically like a school assignment that I had to yeah. read for school. I could go, you know what? I don't want to finish this. Yes. And I don't have to do that. And Life you get to talk about short. why you didn't finish it. You yeah. get to discuss and life uncover. is too short to read books you don't like there are too it's many true. good books in this world to it read is a not book too that short you don't like to hoard them all no, no. but it is too short to read them all <laughs> I agree Your TBR yeah, I, list should always be too long yes it should be and well, I suppose it should feel better because I started a different nonfiction book and got partway through but I can't <laughs> wrong with it but i can't i didn't realize it was an unsolved unsolved oh. one from the oh i'm uh, not a fan of unsolved. 30s uh-uh. i'm not either and i didn't realize it till i was about part i'm, I'm probably 60 percent through it and went i can't nope. do it no <laughs> i know nope. you know, i'm gonna spill a, a secret of the literary world here i hope you guys are okay with that i don't know what secret you're gonna spill but i'll let you it'll know be, after you it'll be okay it. i will venture to say that we are voracious readers yes mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And even we run into reading ruts. Yeah, for sure. And mm. as, if you listener decide to continue on this journey with us, you will notice when we're in reading ruts. Yeah. Or when we read a completely off the wall book that is not anything like what we usually read. And it's to try to get out of a reading rut. To try to get out of it. Yeah. Yep. Or to get yep. over a book hangover because we really loved what we just read. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I know it happens. Well, on that note, let's talk about what we're reading right now. We're picking up next. Nia, what about you? Uh, right now I am listening to, I'm actually going through a re-listen of the Murderbot Diaries right now. Are you keep talking and, about that one and I need to read it. Oh, they're so good. And the narrator is just. So I need he, to listen to it. You do. I mean, okay. you probably could read them, but the way he, so the, The premise of the book is you have this construct that's a security bot that secretly calls himself Murderbot. That's his So the the security bot calls himself Murderbot in his brain? Right. And yeah. And I keep saying himself because the narrator is he, but the Murderbot is it. And it's perfectly okay being an it. It's not human. It does not want to be confused as human. It grosses itself out when it's considered human. Like it's... (laughs) <laughs> very sarcastic. See, I and need to read this. They're good. And the narrator is very tone affleck when he's reading the book because that it's, it works. He's, it's a very sarcastic narrator and I, I love it. So I'm reading Fugitive Telemetry right now, which is the fifth book in the series. Okay. That is a fun yeah. title, right? Well, the first book in the series is called All Systems Red. Oh. And they're, these are the, up until I think the book I'm on right now, they're, short novellas they're only three hour audios oh that's not bad but the one i'm in i'm positive is the one that's like a 12 hour novel oh wow okay i'm just plowing through them again because they're fluffy delightful and sarcastic and great palate cleansers so i can tune in and out a little bit because i've listened to them a few times because my my writing creativity is kind of on a hiatus right now so i'm i'm taking advantage and listening to things and catching up so that is what i'm currently reading right now nice Yeah. So Sydney, what are you doing? So I am currently in the middle of reading a book that caught my attention on an ad for Audible. Like the cover caught my attention and I was like, what is that book? And so I went and looked it up and was like, oh yes, I have to read this right now. And so I stopped in the middle of the book that I was reading to start reading this other, to start reading this book. 
That's high and praise. I'm, and I am listening to it on audiobook and the, the narrator has this fantastically British voice and she's so much fun to listen to. But the book is titled The Botanist's Guide to Parties and Poisons. Ooh. It's by Kate Kavari. It's her debut novel. And it literally just came out in June of this year, June, 2022. Oh, wow. Ooh. It is a brand, brand new. new book. And I'm going to read to you what I read online that was like, yes, I like after seeing the cover, this is what I read. And I was like, yep, I need to read this right now. The lost apothecary meets dead, dead girls in this fast paced steminist adventure. <laughs> you got me there already, but I'm curious. <laughs> I, know, I know that was the sentence I was like, and I'm in. Well, and I'm I love the lost apothecary. So I'm like, mm-hmm, well, okay, let's and go. I caught that title and I was like, oh, Nia talked about how great this book was. Yeah. And so I'm like inherently just reeled in. I'll keep going though, just for the sake of everybody else. Yes. Debut author Kate Kavari deftly entwines a pulse pounding mystery with the struggles of a woman in a male dominated field in 1923 London. Mm-hmm. Newly minted research assistant Saffron Everly is determined to blaze a new trail at the University College London. But with her colleagues' beliefs about women's academic inabilities and not so subtle hints that her deceased father's reputation paved her way into the botany department, she feels stymied at every turn. I love her name. Mm-hmm. Isn't it great? Saffron Everly. Uh huh. <laughs> When she attends a dinner party for the school, she expects to engage in conversations about the university's large expedition to the Amazon. What she doesn't expect is for Mrs. Henry, one of the professor's wives, to drop to the floor poisoned by an unknown toxin. Dr. Maxwell, Saffron's mentor, is the main suspect and evidence quickly mounts. Joined by fellow researcher and potential romantic interest, mm -hmm, Alexander Ashton, Saffron uses her knowledge of botany as she explores steamy greenhouses, dark gardens, and deadly poisons to clear Maxwell's name. Will she be able to uncover the truth or will her investigation land her on the murderer's list in this entertaining examination of society's expectations? That sounds amazing. This sounds that absolutely sounds delightful. So I want to read that. Me too. I was working on something for work at home because I don't have a work-life balance. And I was literally just having this list. I was listening to this playing in the background as I was working on the project I needed to keep going on. And I got through nine chapters before I was like, oh, I should probably go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Like it just caught my attention. And the Mrs. Henry dropping to the floor being poisoned happens in the first chapter. So it is not a spoiler by any means, but having the action pick up and you start running with the action as everything's happening so soon into the book was just really fun. And it kind of gave me the feelings of Gail Carriger's novels, though this is not steampunk like Gail Carriger's works it are, but she has a lot of just real sass in her main character. And, and in chapter 11, you're already rooting for her to get with this guy who is a microbiologist and is has this tragic backstory of having been injured and traumatized in world war one that he can't stand thunderstorms and just like she's already built into these characters so they're already complex and dynamic and there's man that has all the things and i'm like as someone who if you listen to to season one you know i am not a big romance novel person i don't care for love stories it reminds me of how single fun. I am. I am so into this. I am so ready for them to like, I'm like chapter 11, like time is ticking, like just be together already. <laughs> it's like watching a movie and you know, there's only 30 Stop minutes left. beating around the bush. Lots of things have to happen in the next 30 minutes. Let's go. 
Yeah, nope. pick it up. He's leaving for the Amazon in six weeks. You have five <laughs> weeks to get this done. Let's go. <laughs> I will be adding that to my list. Thank you. You are Same. so very welcome. The cover is really, really pretty. And it just, it like I said, I was scrolling through social media. That popped up as an ad for Audible. And I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> I'm stopping what I'm doing right now and changing course. So maybe a little intrigue you as well. Annie, what about you? you. What are you reading right now? So I was subbing the other day. And when I sub, I'm actually able to read books all day because they don't give me any assignments to actually work on with the kids. So I just get to read for a while. I don't know why they don't give me work to do, but they don't. So I was able to bring two books with me. One of them I absolutely hated, but I finished it and I can see why it was pulled from the library. It was a, what's the word when they pull a book. It was, it was weeded. It was weeded Weeded, from the library. Withdrawn. Withdrawn. Yeah. Yeah. About five years ago. And I can see why it was, it was terrible, but I got to read a better book after that. And it was definitely a palate cleanser. So I started Bruja Born by That mm -hmm. That sounds like one of the books that you talked about last season. Yes, it does. That's because it is the sequel. Oh, yes. There are three of them. Just like I think I could be wrong. There are three sisters. So I think there are three books to go with the three sisters. That sounds right. I think that's how I, I, yeah. I didn't realize that going into the second book, but anyway, so it's called Bruja Born and it's by Zoreta Cordova. It's the second book of the Brooklyn Brujas following Labyrinth Lost, which I talked about in a previous episode. That's right. That's right. Labyrinth that's right. Lost is told from the perspective of the middle sister who doesn't want her magical powers and sends her whole family into Los Lagos and they have to fight demons and things and they go through a maze. It was pretty cool. The second book. Brooklyn Brujas is told by the older sister, Lula, and it's from her perspective. Her power is healing people, but she's coming into, it follows the first book, Labyrinth Lost. I think pretty much exactly where it left off, or maybe a couple weeks have passed. So some pretty big things happen at the end of Labyrinth Lost that then affect this next book. Okay. And she has some anger issues. Because, you know, I would be mad if my sister banished me and our entire family into a world of demons. Like, I'd be a little mad about that. Yeah, yeah I'd, have some, I'd have some resentment building. Yeah, yeah. So this book picks up with that anger. And the first scene of the, well, the second scene of the book and the third scene. The second scene is Lula and her boyfriend breaking up because they're in high school. And then the third scene, there is a massive car accident involving the entire soccer team and the entire cheerleading team. Her power is healing power. But her power is healing power. So her boyfriend just broke up with her. Then she gets on an awkward bus ride with her boyfriend. And then she decides to use her magic in a weird way. And because she decides she wants to heal his heart. She's like, if I heal your heart, you'll fall back in love with me. Oh, she did the love potion route, which you're not supposed yes. to do. And then they got this in a massive. definitely going to end well. Right. Then they got in a massive car accident, bus accident, like 30 seconds later, which I'm pretty sure had nothing to do with her spell, but I'm not sure yet. Oof. Yeah. Like casualties, which really bothered me as a teacher, because yeah. I'm like, how do you go back to school the next day? telling everyone that half the soccer team has passed and a quarter of the cheerleaders like anyway the school wouldn't be normal after that no 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 also it's kind of a little not unrealistic but the way it's written I thought okay that's like you're you're just trying to build up the tension here there are a lot of things that you could have changed 
Anyway, that's beyond the point. So she's in the hospital, her family with their magical powers heal her. And then she's like, but what about my boyfriend? Uh, Mm -hmm. Who's in a coma, uh, like a pretty deep coma. Right. Because a metal bar went through his chest and hers. Yeah. So they involve the families, the magical families of Brooklyn get involved And she has to decide whether or not she wants to bring in blood magic to save him. And it's just all the things are coming. All the drama. All the drama. Feels like a much heavier book than the first one probably was. I think so. Yes. If that's your opener, that's pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah. 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 But what I like about this series is that, you know, these girls, Lula is, I want to say 17. 16, 17, because she's the oldest sister. And then her younger sister is, I think, a freshman. And then their youngest sister is in middle school. And they still act like their ages. Okay. Which is really nice to see. It's important. It's nice to see that they're still flawed, that they're not just these perfect people with these perfect magical powers. They still make teenage decisions, which is cool. And that's what I like about it, that they're very, very relatable and they're very flawed. And that's nice. I like when people, well, I like when writers spend time on their characters to make them more dynamic mm-hmm. and to really build in that relatability. It doesn't take very long. And by that, no. I mean, it doesn't take very many words. It doesn't take very many paragraphs, many pages. It just takes a lot of thought. Yeah. You just have to, it has to be an intentional choice. It does. It does. For sure. So that's what I'm reading. I'll probably finish it next week. Great. Friends, thank you for listening to this chapter of the Bookstack. As we sign off, we'd like to leave you with some food for thought, and we'll see you next time when we take a look at some of our favorite series from our stacks. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Bookstack Trio and follow us at Bookstack Trio on Instagram and Facebook to see a full listing of the books mentioned in our stacks. If you read a book from this stack, let us know what you thought on social media. You can also find us on our website at bookstacktrio.com. My mind reels with sarcastic replies. Charles M. Schultz, 1963.